Hello, my name is Hélène Tigruja, a scholar in residence at NYU and affiliated with the Center for New Human Rights and, and Global Justice and Professor of International Law in Aix-en-Provence in France at Aix-Marseille University. And uh, I'm also a member of the UN uh, United Nations Human Rights Committee. Uh, the topic of this lecture uh, is uh, fascinating but also very challenging. I'm going to talk about uh, the elimination of discrimination against women in international law. And uh, this lecture is based on a collective work uh, led with my colleague Professor Marit Yantara uh, Yarborg um, from the Uppsala University. And this collective work was uh, realized in the framework of the YAG Academy activities and especially the 2014 uh, Center for International and, uh, Studies and, and Research. And uh, each, every year uh, the, in, during the summer, some uh, young and brilliant uh, French and English speaking researchers in international law, in private international law and public international law, do gather at the YAG and uh, work together on a topic. And for 2014, uh, the Curatorium of the Egg Academy chose this topic of elimination of uh, discrimination against uh, women. So the reflections of these three weeks of uh, collective work were published in 2017 in a book published so by uh, Brill, Brill Publishers, and uh, so some chapters are in French, some chap other chapters are in English, and we have tried to capture all the issue and all the, uh, the topic related to uh, elimination of discrimination against uh, women. So, to present uh, this very challenging topic uh, on uh, elimination uh, of, of discrimination, I will first start with a general and very swiftly um, drawn uh, picture of the different forms of discrimination against women in different sectors, uh, public life, private life, political life, etc. And uh, then, uh, in the second point, I will discuss uh, uh, about the main factors of, of discrimination. I will not have to develop all the factors, but I will dwell on uh, especially uh, stereotypes as one of the main factors of, of discrimination. My third point will be focused on uh, the responses provided by international law and of course, first, uh, international human rights law, but also other areas of international law as international criminal law, uh, international humanitarian law, and as a new area, international uh, collective security. And uh, my fourth point um, will uh, mention uh, also the uh, main achievements during the 90s uh, regarding this uh, topic of elimination of, of discrimination against uh, women. And I will conclude with some challenging and still uh, challenging uh, issue uh, to achieve uh, substantive equality between women and men and not only uh, formal equality. So first, uh, factual and data-based uh, statement uh, on this, uh, of this lecture and, and, and the picture of discrimination and persistent uh, discrimination against uh, women. Um, so this picture is um, based uh, on uh, some works of the former UN Special Rapporteur on, um, on violence against women, uh, its, cause, its causes and consequences. 
and uh, works of the UN um, Working Group on Discrimination Against Women uh, in Law and Practice. That's the official name of the, working U uh, of the UN Working Group and also work of the, uh, of the UN CEDO. And I'm going to dwell later on the uh, UN CEDO. So based on the, on the work of these uh, different UN organs, um, what we can see and what we observe is uh, that the uh, discrimination against women occurs in many sectors of public and private life, uh, economic life and, and political uh, life and forms what the, uh, f what the former UN Special Rapporteur um, uh, described in her 2011 report, and I quote the, the report of the UN Special Rapporteur, um, a continuum of exploitation of abuse. And unfortunately, this statement of continuum of exploitation and abuse is uh, also shared by the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and by the UN CEDAW. Um, um, of course, women are not uh, victims or vulnerable in a sense, and that's a significant point to, uh, to, to point it out and to dwell on. But uh, it must be recognized also that in their material condition, that ma their material situation is um, characterized by an almost uh, gen generalized uh, inequality towards men. Uh, and this equality, inequality is um, sometimes purely factual, uh, sometimes uh, the inequality is economic, and sometimes the inequality is legal, and is legal because endorsed by the legal system, and sometimes it, it's legal because it's, uh, this inequality is promoted also by the, uh, by the domestic legal system. So uh, from a general statement, what we see is that the position of women in different sectors, and I will give some more precise data, but the uh, position of, of women in different sectors uh, and moments uh, of their life is very fragile and subordinate, subordinate uh, and depending on the region of the world um, to, uh, to men. And um, it, sometimes it seems very difficult and very challenging to transform this situation and to uh, challenge this, uh, this situation. So some more precise data on this situation of subordination of, of women and inequality. Um, and again, these data are drawn from uh, the work of the UN uh, organs I mentioned uh, earlier. Um, in public life, first, uh, the data provided by the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women in its uh, 2013 uh, annual report are very relevant and very significant. And I quote uh, the report. With regard to legislative power, there is an average of 20% women in national parliaments. Only 33 out of 149 countries have 30% or more women among their members of parliament. And parity prevails in only two countries, so out of the 149 countries. Um, and in addition, and I uh, quote again uh, the, the, the report of the UN group, in addition, there are large disparities between countries. In 45 of them, women represent less than 10% of members of parliaments. Um, moreover, while the right to vote is formally recognized in 
all countries in the in the world, in almost all countries, all states. Uh, in practice, um, there's also a problem because um, this uh, concretely, this uh, right to vote is not always. Uh, protected and guaranteed and it may happen and it's also based on statements and of the uh, UN organ. Um, it may happen that a family member votes in place of uh, a woman. Um, this 2014 re uh, 13 report adds that in the executive branch uh, the situation is not better. Women's representation is much lower with less than 20 female heads of state and few in governments. And as for the judiciary, the report points out that there are major differences uh, between countries and different region, uh, region in the world. But on average, women represent no more than 30% 30 per, 30 of judges in the world. So that's the discrimination, and that's the picture uh, for the uh, situation of women in uh, the public life and, I would say, political uh, life and political uh, decision-making. Um, such discrimination is also very significant and very uh, important in the economic sector. Uh, they, they would have many things to say about this, but uh, many international bodies, human rights bodies, but not only, have shown that women are disproportionately affected by the effects of different financial and economic crises, and especially the crisis of 2008. Uh, so poverty and women, it's a very uh, significant and very challenging issue, but poverty is not the only uh, challenge uh, faced with by women. Uh, different reports and different works also uh, show that equal access to economic and financial decision making, uh, what the working group, the UN working group calls uh, the economic empowerment, uh, is still uh, far from being a reality. Uh, the labor market is another place where discrimination between men and women is blatant and it's not only about uh, the question of salary uh, th this question is significant but it's not the only element of uh, concern regarding the, the position of women in labor market um, in uh, a report adopted by the world bank in 2016 and the the, the title of the report was women business and the law there is uh, and i quote the report there is a constellation of direct and indirect legal, economic, political, and other obstacles uh, that prevent women from accessing uh, the labor market uh, on an equal footing with uh, men. But uh, discrimination are also um, very present uh, in the private life, family life, and uh, domestic area in the sense that the, the, the civil status of women uh, for many reasons and with various forms uh, is uh, unequal and uh, the, especially the rights that should be recognized to women because they are member of the human family, if I use the words of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, are not recognized and their rights as a woman, their rights, uh, their rights as a wife, their, their rights as a widow, etc., they, they may be uh, breached by uh, the domestic system. And especially 
what we see in these different uh, domestic areas, private life, etc., is that the, there is an equality in excess of uh, the decision making, and especially decision making even when uh, the decision uh, does concern their body, even when the decision does concern their health or their sexuality, their sexual life, their sexual health, etc., etc. And I recall here uh, that uh, it was only in uh, 90, um, 1995 in the judgment SW versus United Kingdom that the European Court of Human Rights um, did recognize uh, that rape between spouses is prohibited and should be prohibited. So it was uh, quite late and uh, the European Court um, did uh, also recognize that the principle of immunity between spouses in this uh, situation of rape could not cover anymore uh, this kind of, uh, of behavior. Um, in addition to all this situation of discrimination and situation of vulnerability in public sector, in private sector, in economic life, etc., um, there is one other form of discrimination that is uh, very significant and uh, and uh, the effect of this form of discrimination is to keep uh, women uh, of victims of discrimination in their situation of inferiority and, and vulnerability. And this element, uh, this form of discrimination is about uh, access to justice. And uh, the uh, UN Committee, the UN Committee on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, uh, points this element out in its general command uh, 33, adopted in uh, 2015. And uh, especially the uh, UN Committee did recall uh, the significance of the right to have an access to civil judge uh, or civil justice or uh, criminal justice. Um, family justice, etc. But uh, the current situation of women is um, not good on this access to justice uh, for tourism and in general uh, women uh, do face two kinds of problems. Either women are discriminated against uh, on gender grounds and for various reasons, economic position, uh, geographical situation, uh, sometimes education situation, uh, position, etc., they cannot have an access to a tribunal, a criminal court or a, a civil court. That's one of the situations and the most often um, uh, seen by the UN uh, committee. And the, on the other side, uh, it may also happen that uh, the tribunals do exist and the, the courts are available and accessible to women, but the law and the domestic system is by itself discriminatory and does not recognize rights in favor of a woman. And I will uh, give some uh, illustration a bit, um, a bit later. So uh, the picture is um, particularly concerning and uh, what uh, the different um, UN organs observe is that this picture unfortunately uh, is not focused on one continent or one country or one period of time but it's um, a general statement in various countries and, and various continents and uh, different periods of time. 
And uh, of course, uh, this quite scaring and quite depressing picture uh, leads us to, to try to figure out what are the, the main reasons of this uh, position of discrimination and main factors of, of discrimination. So that, that, that's my second point uh, about the, the main factors of, um, of discrimination. Um, of course, I reject here strongly uh, uh, the, the statements made by classic philosophy, by Plato, etc., that women are inferior, in a sense, uh, because they would be a gen degenerate uh, version of perfect human nature. Uh, men would be a complete human being, and I quote uh, Plato, created directly by the gods, uh, and uh, therefore men uh, do have a soul, uh, which would not be the case of women. Um, of course, uh, I reject this kind of discourse, but we have to keep this in mind because this essentially, essentialism is still uh, very present in some uh, speeches, in some cultures, and to a certain extent feeds uh, the stereotypes I will develop and I will, uh, I will address as one of the main factors of discrimination against, uh, against women. So uh, it's not just about history, but we have to keep this uh, in mind. Uh, but before addressing uh, the topic of stereotypes, I would just would like to say a few words on how to address these factors, because I'm just going to mention stereotypes, but they, they could be or there are many factors uh, feeding discrimination. And how to address these factors, and um, especially uh, uh, I, I'm going to say a few words on the uh, growing use by different UN um, um, and regional organs of human rights, uh, the use of intersectionality and intersectional approach of, of, of discrimination. Um, of course, it's not easy to understand why uh, women face more discrimination than men. And uh, uh, it's clear that there is no one factors. And um, the, this tool of intersectionality, and it's a tool from uh, the sociology, uh, is very interesting because it helps to understand uh, the, the complexity of the phenomenon of discrimination and how discrimination may feed discrimination and how a person placed in a situation of discrimination may be uh, victims of uh, different uh, of different discrimination, and this intersectional approach of um, uh, discrimination against women is, uh, as I said, uh, increasingly uh, used by some human rights organs. For instance. Um, the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights did use this intersectional approach in two cases. Uh, first adopted in 2015, uh, Gonzalez-Louis uh, versus Ecuador, and uh, it was a case, a uh, very interesting case, very significant case, regarding the um, contamination of a girl uh, by uh, HIV. And uh, uh, in this case, uh, the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights considered that the uh, state was responsible for different violations of the American Convention of Human Rights, but especially 
intersectional discrimination and multiple discrimination. Because in this case, uh, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights did consider that the uh, access to justice and access to public services, etc., was not recognized based on the gender because this woman, this little girl was a little girl, but also based on economic situation because uh, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights did consider that if uh, the family had more money, the situation would, would, have, would not have been uh, the same. And uh, in another case uh, adopted in 2016, uh, uh, against uh, Bolivia, IV against Bolivia, um, regarding uh, forced uh, sterilization or non-consensual sterilization, if I use the words of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, um, the uh, Inter-American Court did use, again, uh, this um, concept of intersectional discrimination in, in order to capture uh, the situation of this woman, placed in this situation of uh, forced sterilization, not only because she's a woman, but also the European, uh, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights considered also because she was poor and she had no economic, um, she was not in a good economic uh, situation or position. And for the first time, the UN Human Rights Committee uh, did also use uh, this approach of um, based on intersectional uh, discrimination in uh, different views, very controversial views, uh, adopted in um, uh, July uh, 2018 uh, regarding um, the wearing of religious um, scarf in public space. And in these cases, against France, cases of views against France, and in these cases, uh, the uh, UN Human Rights Committee did consider that France um, did uh, violate uh, the prohibition of discrimination based on two grounds, discrimination based on gender and discrimination based on uh, religious uh, beliefs. So we can see that this uh, intersectional approach of discrimination, I mean, uh, the interaction of different uh, grounds of discrimination is more and more used by uh, different uh, organs. And I, of course, I would have, I could also quote um, reports of different uh, special rapporteurs of the UN, etc. Uh, but not for the European Court of Human Rights. For, for the moment, uh, this approach is not used by the European Court of Human Rights. And what is the added value of approaching discrimination based on this intersectional approach of, of, of grounds? Uh, for me, it's um, this interest uh, is at two level, levels. Uh, I would say from First, from a theoretical point of view and methodological point of view, uh, it makes it possible to show uh, that discrimination against women constitutes a, a category of, of human rights violations uh, that is not monolithic and that is very complex. And again, uh, in general, when a person is discriminated against, it's not only based on one ground, but in general, we have a combination of, of different factors. And um, moreover, this approach of, uh, of discrimination on intersectional, uh, uh, with this intersectional dimension, invites to bring uh, other factors that gender that can be 
significant to capture the situation of discrimination. Uh, as I said, for instance, the economic position, the health condition, the situation of disabilities, etc., uh, etc. Et and um, that's very interesting because uh, we, we can better understand uh, the phenomenon of discrimination and that people in general uh, are, are discriminated against based on different factors. And the second thing that intersectionality makes it possible to, to understand is that in reality, uh, the, analyze, the analysis of discrimination on one ground, gender for instance, or race or property or birth is uh, necessarily partial and therefore um, gives only a, a, a limited view of what discrimination really is and what the, the discriminatory phenomenon uh, really um, is and the resulting vulnerability of, of the person. And so when people work, and so the, the different organs I mentioned, work on situation of populations living in uh, poverty, indigenous communities, asylum seekers, uh, elderly persons, persons deprived of their liberty, etc. When we work on, this, uh, on the situation of this person from a human rights point of view, uh, the interest of the intersectional uh, approach is to understand that, in general, these categories of person are placed in this uh, continuum of exploitation of abuse mentioned by the UN uh, Special Rapporteur I quoted earlier. Um, and, and these person, and I quote again the, the, the Special Rapporteur and it's her report of 2011, this person uh, are placed at the crossroads of multiple vulnerabilities and are victims of structural uh, discrimination. So, uh, to sum up this uh, point on intersectional discrimination, I think it's more and more important and it's very significant uh, to uh, adopt what the, the, the UN Special Rapporteur calls um, a holistic approach of discrimination. So sometimes the gender element may be the, the most significant element in the situation of discrimination, but is not unique. So we have to understand discrimination with this holistic uh, way of capturing uh, the phenomenon of, of, of discrimination. And that's uh, very, uh, ver very significant and very important, and especially when we uh, read uh, the, 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 the judgment I mentioned earlier of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, it's obvious that the gender element is not the only element uh, at the basis of the, uh, of the discrimination. But uh, a few words now on the main factor of discrimination. And as I mentioned, stereotypes are actually uh, the main factors, or one of the main factors of, of discrimination. Um, under Article 5A of the uh, UN uh, Convention on Elimination of Discrimination, and I will say a few words later on this uh, UN Convention, and I quote Article 5, uh, states have an obligation um, to take um, appropriate measures to modify the social and cultural patterns of conduct of men and women with a, few, with a view to achieving the elimination of prejudices and customary and all other practices which are based on the idea of the inferiority or superiority of either of the sexes uh, or on stereotyped roles of men and women. And indeed, 
it's quite clear based on the practice of different countries and different periods of time, it's clear that one of the main sources of discrimination, uh, whatever the discrimination may be in the private sector, public sector, political life, economic life, etc., lies in these stereotypes and prejudices. And um, from the point of view of discrimination against women, the stereotypes may raise a different uh, issue and uh, these different issues are not challenged by the same way because they have not the same level of uh, complexity. Uh, a first kind of stereotype we may find in the different domestic uh, legislation is when uh, domestic, domestic law, for instance, are based on uh, stereotypical behavior as illustrated by the case law of the UN Committee on, on um, Elimination of Discrimination Against uh, Women. And especially uh, a lot of decision, a lot of views based on individual complaints uh, delivered by the UN um, CEDAW uh, are focused on uh, national legislation punishing rape, but which is good, of course. But in general, this legislation may be um, built on a stereotype of what is the best victim of rape and how a victim of rape should uh, be and should react and what kind of reaction these uh, victims of, of rape should uh, have. Uh, so the, the, the stereotype of the ideal victim, and the ideal victim, for instance, is uh, a victim which uh, explicitly expresses, expresses his or her refusal, uh, tries to evade the aggressor, etc., etc. And of course, if we have this uh, picture of the perfect victim, the ideal victim, and if we draw consequences uh, from this behavior of what should be the perfect or the ideal victim, it may be very dangerous if the victim does not have the perfect behavior as thought and as, as uh, uh, put in, 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 the domestic, uh, in the domestic system. So in general, uh, in different um, decisions the, the UN committee uh, did adopt on this domestic legislation based on uh, this ideal victim of, of rape, in general, uh, the uh, UN committee uh, did recommend uh, um, to amend uh, the legislation in order to um, uh, to um, make um, to, to adopt a more gender approach of uh, rape and, and sexual uh, sexual violence. Um, but I would say this situation, this first uh, situation of um, stereotype, is not the most difficult to, to fight against because, you know, in the case law of the UN uh, committee, it's, uh, it's not so difficult to understand that a law is based on stereotype. There are another, there are, there's other category, there is another category of stereotype which is more difficult to, to fight against and which is more difficult to, to struggle against. Uh, and, and these stereotypes are those based on the culture and not necessarily uh, in the law, but in the culture or in the way of conceiving uh, the different world between and the and the the, uh, the, the role between men and, and, and women. 
and um, especially the stereotypes uh, on which an entire society uh, seems to have been uh, built and seem to, seems to, to accept. And I will give um, two examples of this uh, stereotype and especially two cases regarding uh, the violence, sexual violence and, and, uh, and domestic violence. The first case is a case uh, um, brought before the European Court of Human Rights, is the case Opus versus Turkey, uh, and the European Court of Human Rights did deliver a very significant judgment on this uh, in 2009. And the second case is uh, a case delivered a few weeks after the case uh, of the European Court. So it's a case delivered by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, Gonzalez and others versus Mexico concerning uh, disappearances of uh, poor young uh, women in the, in the city of Ciudad Juarez in, in, in Mexico. And uh, the thing very interesting in these two cases, the first one, Opus versus Turkey, is about domestic violence, and so the second one is about uh, uh, disappearance of, of young women. The, the, the very interesting things in, thing in, this, in these two cases is that the two um, regional courts um, did highlight that um, the violence were, was private, but because uh, the reaction of the public authorities were not um, efficient or the public authorities, police officers, etc., the judicial branch, etc., were reluctant to fight against this kind of violence, domestic violence, or uh, to um, make investigation on the disappearance of this woman. The, the two judges um, did consider that there was uh, and I quote uh, the, the, the words used by the European Court on the one side and the Inter-American Court on the other side, uh, that there was in these two countries, Turkey and Mexico, a culture of discrimination. So the states were not directly responsible for the domestic violence on the one side or the disappearance of the, uh, of the young woman on the other side in Mexico, but because uh, the state did tolerate um, for a long time this violence against women, the, uh, Europe, the European Court and the Inter-American Court did consider that it was a way to accept this violence against women. And so as a measure of operation, the, uh, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights um, uh, especially recommended to Mexico to um, adopt more gender-based uh, program of training of police officers, of uh, judicial officers, etc., etc., in order to avoid uh, uh, these uh, situations to be uh, repeated. Um, and, and so, this gender-based approach of the uh, of the the fight against violence against women uh, was also repeated and highlighted by the Inter-American Court and the European Court in, in other judgments after these two landmarks uh, decision. Um, and in this, uh, in this situation, of course, it's more difficult to fight against uh, stereotype because, as I said, it's more cultural and uh, there's an acceptance by the society, by the men, but 
sometimes by the women themselves, that they are in situation of inferiority. So the legal instruments are not sufficient sometimes to fight against this kind of uh, stereotypes. And that's the reason why education, training, and discussion, conversation, other this um, uh, equality between men and women are so, uh, are so significant. Um, Precisely, that's my third point. What are the responses provided by international law and how international law may help uh, the states to, um, to uh, fight against uh, these uh, stereotypes and situation of inferiority of women in, in, in their uh, domestic system? And one of the main questions, uh, a lot of lawyers, human rights lawyers, feminist lawyers, etc., raise is, uh, the following is uh, the development of a specific branch of international law and especially specific branch of international human rights law dedicated to women. Uh, is this specific branch uh, necessary, useful, sufficient to fight against uh, discrimination against women? Um, and to use uh, the wording used by uh, Chelsworth uh, is an international women's law necessary to improve the situation of women and, and especially to fight against this uh, different um, situation of, of discrimination. Um, the answers uh, uh, should be very cautious, um, especially, and that will be my point, uh, when considering uh, the uh, UN Convention on Elimination of, of Discrimination or uh, the regional um, initiatives uh, for, in favor of, of specific instruments um, uh, that address uh, this uh, issue of, of discrimination. So first a few words on the CEDAW and then a few words very swiftly on the regional uh, instruments in favor of women's rights and situation of, of, of women. Um, so the CEDAW uh, is, uh, was adopted in uh, 1979 and entered into force very sh uh, shortly uh, after its adoption and so uh, two years later in 81 and uh, it has been almost universally uh, ratified and uh, in November 2018 there are uh, 189 uh, state parties to this uh, to this treaty so it's good. I mean, for, for UN treaty, it's uh, very significant to have all this uh, ratification from member states. And um, regarding the content of the uh, UN uh, convention, uh, at the end of the 70s, uh, this uh, text is a revolution because uh, the, uh, the content of the, of the treaty and the, the aim of the treaty is to uh, impose to the states uh, party um, some obligation to fight against discrimination against women. And uh, so it was significant because um, the, the UN Convention did fill a gap in the uh, of other general uh, human rights instruments. Of course, in the European Convention of Human Rights or in the uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, we discrimination is prohibited and especially discrimination based on gender but uh, we have in these treaties general treaties no special provision of women so that's the reason why uh, regarding the content and, and, and the obligation of, of states uh, the adoption of the 
of this Sedo uh, was uh, so significant. And um, the discrimination is, and I will quote Article, article One of the of the of the Convention. The discrimination is defined uh, uh, as follows: For the purposes of the Convention, the term discrimination against women means any distinction, exclusion, or restriction based on sex, which has the effect or purpose of impairing or destroying, destroying uh, the recognition, enjoyment or exercise by women, irrespective of their marital status, on the basis of equality of men and women, of human rights and fundamental freedoms in the political, economic, social, cultural, civil and any other field. As for Article 2, uh, this provision is also significant because it specifies uh, the scope and content of uh, state parties' obligation, and especially the state and uh, the uh, scope and content of the uh, obligation of, of discrimination. Um, Article four is also very significant because it refers to what is called uh, temporary special measures, and um, these temporary special measures are. Uh, of the utmost uh, importance to promote uh, concrete and effective progress towards equality. So it means that uh, the, the state party are authorized by this uh, provision, Article 4, to adopt uh, aff affirmative measures in favor of women. It just in, and it's temporary, of course, because we cannot create a discrimination against men. But these temporary special measures uh, are dedicated to to, to bring uh, concretely uh, the, the substantial equality between uh, men and, and, and women. And uh, the second and third part of the uh, UN Convention uh, develop uh, the different measures uh, the states must, must adopt in the fields of um, political and social life, for instance, uh, Article 7 to 9, uh, economic, social and cultural rights, Article 10 to 15, and concerning uh, domestic legal personality of women. And I add uh, to this uh, list of provisions of the SEDO Article 16, of the of the convention with it, which is a, a very core provision and uh, it's not surprising that this article uh, 16 about the politic uh, about the uh, personal uh, and uh, judicial uh, legal personality of women uh, is one of the provision um, uh, that has attracted the most uh, reservations by state parties um with we have some it's a very long provision and there are some things about the uh, civil status of women and principle of equality uh, in uh, between spouses etc and uh, from a procedural point of view, uh, state parties have to report to the committee established by Article 17 of the UN Convention and on a regular base basis as for other UN treaty bodies and uh, the committee uh, overviews uh, the state's report under Article 18 of the, of the same instrument. So, that was a revol revolution at the end of the, of the 70s and, and again the content is quite interesting compared to the more general uh, convention on, on, on human rights. But um, this uh, specific instrument um, focusing on discrimination against women um, 
has been criticized and for 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 different uh, uh, reasons and and that's the reason why I said previously that it's it's difficult to say that we will solve or settle the problem of discrimination because we have a specific treaty on on, on discrimination. First. Um, even if uh, the UN Convention has been, as I said, uh, almost universally, universally ratified, um, uh, the, uh, the Convention has been also uh, subject to a lot of reservations by state parties, um, and these reservations are um, uh, authorized by Article 28 of the uh, CEDAW. Uh, so uh, about 80 states have made uh, reservations and some of these reservations are uh, very dangerous for the integrity of the text because uh, they are generally worded and uh, they deprive the text of any kind of effectiveness, uh, making uh, its application conditional, for example, to um, uh, the respect of the cultural or religious tradition of the of the state concerns. Um, some states have formulated, and mainly European states, have formulated objections to reservation. But in terms of uh, efficiency, um, these objections were not sufficient enough to uh, to to preserve uh, the integrity of the uh, of the CEDAW. Um, moreover, while the text was adopted in 79, uh, there was no individual complaints mechanisms, um, mechanism for a long period of time. Uh, protocol authorizing individual complaints was adopted at the end of the 90s, um, which created the same monitoring regime as for the ICCPR, International Covenant on Civil civil and political rights or the um, convention on, on the elimination of, of racial discrimination. Um, it should be added that since uh, its creation and while women have been largely underrepresented uh, in other U United Nations treaty bodies and special procedures, um, CEDAW has mainly been composed of women, which is not a good thing because uh, the the, the issues uh, discussed by the committee are not only women's issue, but uh, they are issues that should be addressed and discussed by uh, men and women. Things are changing, and especially the composition of this of the CEDAW is changing, but uh, I think uh, this gender balance and this gender approach of the uh, different members of the UN treaty bodies should be uh, really addressed by uh, the state. But the main critics, uh, the main critic made uh, against or toward this uh, UN convention um, is that the text itself, and especially the preamble of the, of the convention, does not challenge sexism uh, in the same way that the for instance, the Convention on Racial Discrimination uh, adopted in 65 uh, condemns racism with very strong and very firm uh, words. Um, and I quote the preamble of the uh, 1965 Convention on Racial Discrimination. In this preamble, it stated that states are convinced that any doctrine of superiority based on racial differentiation is scientifically 
false, morally condemnable, and socially unjust and dangerous, and that nothing can justify racial discrimination anywhere, neither in theory nor in practice. However, we do not have the same wording in the uh, 79 uh, convention, so in the CEDAW, in the, CEDAW. Uh, the banishment of sexism and more generally, I would say the banishment of theory, theories um, that would scientifically or biologically base uh, the superiority of men over uh, women um, is not present in the text uh, in this Convention on Elimination Against uh, Women. Uh, and the preamble of the uh, 79 Convention is, from the point of view of women's rights, um, and from a feminist perspective, highly problematic, and I quote some words used by the preamble, among several elements, states recall, in particular, that discrimination against women hinders uh, the enhancement of the well-being of society and the family and prevents women from serving their country and humanity to the best of their ability. And I quote again, the well-being of the family, the progress of the society, and the social importance of motherhood are all expressions for, found in this short preamble. So it means that um, uh, elimination of discrimination is not understood in 79 uh, but, but by itself, I would say we have uh, we, we, we need to fight against discrimination because it's bad and because it's based on wrong theory of superiority of men over women. The wording is different. We have to fight against discrimination because it's good for the society and it's good for the well-being of uh, the family, etc. So uh, the approach of the state at the end of the 70s is not so gender-friendly, uh, if I could say things uh, like that. And even the term sexism is not included in the preamble of, the, um, of, the, um, of this convention. And in the same way, uh, the, the different instruments and the different specific instruments adopted uh, after the, uh, the CEDAW and including uh, the uh, Inter-American Convention on uh, the Prevention, Punishment, and Eradication of Violence Against Women, so adopted uh, by the Organization of American States in 94, uh, or more recently, uh, the uh, Council of Europe Convention of Domest on Domestic Violence, so adopted in 2011. This treaty, this specific regional treaty, do not condemn uh, the doctrine of superiority of um, men over women either. So, um, the two, uh, what can be seen is that these different instruments and these different specific instruments are, um, do condemn violence, do condemn uh, discrimination against women, but uh, they do not um, condemn uh, sexism with uh, the same, I would say, strong wording as uh, the uh, 65 Convention of the UN didn't condemn racism. And that's one of the uh, significant critiques, again, uh, this uh, UN Convention. 
As for the regional initiatives, uh, just a few words, I will be uh, more, uh, more brief. Uh, these uh, regional initiatives are supposed to establish more um, close relations between states, so it could therefore be expected that uh, the treaty um, adopted under the, this framework would be more ambitious and, and specific. Um, but as mentioned, just mentioned, um, the regional uh, level is subject, I would say, to the same risk, risk of ambiguity and ambivalence as uh, the UN framework regarding uh, the condemnation of, of discrimination against women. Um, the, Inter-American Convention adopted in uh, 94, so on elimination of violence against women, and the 2011 Convention of the Council of Europe um, regarding uh, domestic violence do not address um, uh, discrimination against women uh, in, their, in this holistic, or, or based on this holistic approach I mentioned earlier or, or the, the discrimination against women in, the, in their complexity and uh, in their uh, totality. Um, but the aim of the two regional instruments, uh, the Inter-American Convention and the European text, is uh, to, to fight against the physical and mental uh, violence that can be inflicted to, um, to women. And, um, as uh, the UN Convention, the uh, European uh, Convention on, on Domestic Violence, so the 2011 Convention, has been uh, the subject of a very large number of reservations. And these reservations, of course, are not of the same nature. Uh, some uh, reservations aim only at resolving um, issues of territorial application, for instance, of the uh, European Convention. but more or less 20 states uh, out of the 33 uh, ratifications have made reservation, which is um, a lot for a, a European treaty or a treaty adopted in the framework of the, of the Council of Europe. Um, the only regional text uh, devoted to women's rights in general, and not only to violence or to uh, discrimination, is uh, the protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, and this protocol is focused on the rights of women in Africa, so it was adopted in 2003, and, and it's known as the Maputo Protocol. And uh, the text is interesting because, as I said, it's not only a text based on violence and, and women as victims of violence or women as victims of discrimination, but it's also a positive text. I mean, it's also a text that recognizes a lot of uh, rights in favor of, uh, of women and uh, rights in the sector of public life, private life, economic um, life. And um, especially we may find in this Maputo protocol very interesting provisions on the, uh, the uh, right to sexual and uh, uh, reproductive health, for instance, uh, the status of women in marital situation, relations, uh, the right to divorce, uh, the fight against uh, harmful practices and uh, political rights of women. So it, it's not only a text focusing on discrimination and violence, but it's also a text of empowerment of, um, of women. But 
um, uh, these uh, instruments uh, entered into force in 2005, but it, it, it's not um, ratified by a lot of states of the uh, African Union, uh, only about uh, 30 African Union states. Um, uh, had rati have ratified uh, this instrument, and uh, to my knowledge, uh, there is almost no uh, domestic application. There, there was one case before the um, Court of Justice of the Economic Community of West African States, uh, in, delivered in October 2017, uh, that did apply this uh, Maputo Protocol, but there's no, almost no um, domestic application. So the effectivity and the efficiency of the text is, um, is uh, under question. Um, my fourth uh, point, uh, based on this, and, uh, and I would like to go beyond uh, the, the critics addressed to the, uh, to the instruments, uh, and to be more optimistic, of course. Uh, my fourth uh, point is about the progress, and the progress not in the text, because they have been adopted, so it's difficult to, 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 to amend, uh, or it would be difficult to amend, for instance, uh, the, the CEDAW, but the progress in the, in the practice of the, uh, the different um, uh, areas of international law. And uh, uh, beyond the text, and again, to be a little bit, a little bit more optimistic, uh, it's clear that uh, public international law and both from a normative point of view and from a practical point of view, is slowly but surely moving or evolving uh, towards, I would say, a, a pro-femina direction. And uh, it's quite obvious in um, international human rights law, in humanitarian law, to a certain extent in international criminal law, and also in other branches of international law as um, refugee law and uh, international law of uh, collective security. I will not have the time to develop all this aspect, but I just want to uh, put the light and to flag uh, these uh, different elements. So, what we, observe, uh, what we observe on this practice is that what uh, Chelsworth called uh, the women's experiences are more and more taken into account by text, um, binding text or soft law text, and also by uh, the, the international organ. Um, and from this point of view, even if uh, the decisions are not very uh, abundant, uh, the work of the UN uh, CEDAW, uh, so the, the Committee uh, on, on the uh, Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, um, in cases I mentioned of rapes or in cases of uh, domestic violence or um, uh, voluntary termination of pregnancy, abortion, forced sterilization, etc., are very significant. And uh, there, 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 there is even they may have some critics on the UN text, there, there is really an added value of this gender-based approach of human rights brought uh, by the uh, UN committee. So, uh, I, I think uh, that's very significant uh, to, to have this specific body um, working on this uh, issue of gender approach of, of, of human rights. Um, the practice of general human rights bodies, I would be more cautious or I would be, yeah, 
more reluctant to say that uh, all these human rights organs are pro-femina. Um, of course, as I mentioned, uh, uh, there are very landmark judgments uh, delivered by the uh, European Court of Human Rights regarding domestic violence or the, uh, Europe, the Inter-American Court of, uh, of Human Rights. And there are um, other decisions very interesting regarding um, women's rights in terms of empowerment or in terms of political rights, social rights, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but um, I have the impression that the, the, the evolution of the, especially the regional uh, bodies under uh, the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is not at the same level. And uh, especially, um, I would love uh, the European Court of Human Rights uh, be more open to use uh, the work of the UN um, Committee on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, especially when working on uh, forced sterilization or when working on um, all kinds of discrimination against women. So I have the impression, I, I cannot develop, but I have the impression that when we compare the case law of the European Court of Human Rights and the case law of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, um, we may find in the case law of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights a lot of uh, gender-based uh, decision and Included, uh, included uh, regarding, for instance, the reparation. When the Inter-American Court of Human Rights uh, did, did condemn uh, the state for uh, sexual violence or for uh, crimes uh, based on uh, gender, um, the uh, Inter-American Court tried to order uh, reparations and measures of reparation satisfaction, etc., based on a gender approach. So. I, I can see in the practice of the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights this pro-femina approach. I, I, I cannot see this uh, on the same way in the practice of the uh, European Court of Human Rights. I, I think it should be improved and it should, uh, yeah, it, it, it would be necessary to, <clears throat> to go further uh, on this approach of, of human rights. And, and some judgment of the European Court of Human Rights on abortion, for instance, are not uh, at all uh, gender-friendly uh, judgments. So that's the reason why I say that um, f regarding the case law of these general bodies, um, it's difficult to have, I would say, a general statement on this pro-femina uh, evolution. In other areas uh, than uh, other than uh, human rights in other areas of international law, um, the particular experience of women uh, is also um, take, taken into account and especially um, included, for instance, uh, in times of armed conflict. And um, it's very interesting to observe uh, the evolution from the 90s uh, within the UN, uh, this evolution taking uh, into account uh, the, the rape as a weapon of war, for instance, and uh, how uh, the humanitarian law and especially international criminal law has taken into account this, um, uh, this specific uh, form of violence or these specific crimes in time of, uh, in time of conflict and how uh, this, uh, 
for instance, uh, uh, sexual slavery or rape or uh, forced pregnancy, etc., have been uh, included progressively in the practice, in the case law, but also in the statute of the, uh, the different uh, international criminal uh, tribunals, and uh, in particular, uh, the, the statute of the uh, international um, uh, criminal court. So it's very interesting, I cannot develop, but it's very interesting also to see how the gender approach or the gender-based um, experience have been taken into account in this uh, sector of uh, international criminal law and uh, um, international humanitarian law. And I also mentioned, as I said, that uh, in the practice of the, um, of the collective security and especially in the practice of the, uh, the different uh, secretary generals and uh, uh, the Security Council and in the, 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 these um, uh, or the specific, specific experiences of women are also taken into account in different sectors and uh, it's very interesting to see how the wording has changed so because uh, as I said previously the uh, inter the uh, international criminal court and uh, the international criminal law uh, did develop uh, and did take into account this idea that uh, women may be victims of crime, uh, sexual crime, sexual uh, slavery, uh, rape, etc. during armed conflict. But the wording of the uh, uh, Secretary Generals and uh, the, uh, the, the UN Security Council um, have a bit changed, uh, saying that women may also play a positive role in building, in bringing peace and in the peace process and in the uh, post-conflict situation. So, uh, women are not only victims, but women may also be actors of security, um, of security issues and, and peace uh, issues. So, we see that. Uh, women's experiences, again, are taken into account in different sectors. And of course, I could have developed also, um, maybe with less um, um, progress, but uh, also the uh, economic, international economic law. Uh, to conclude, uh, just a, a, a few words on the challenges uh, that uh, are still um, that still exist. Uh, uh, the question is: uh, Are all these developments uh, in and you know developments of text and developments of reports, uh, awareness, uh, international jurisprudence uh, taken? Taken, taking into account uh, the specificity of victim of women's needs, uh, um, is or are these developments enough or sufficient to um, to improve the situation of women and to um, fight against uh, fight against uh, uh, discrimination? Um, the answer is far from certain, of course, for several reasons. Um, first, as I said, uh, the different instrument, and especially the different conventional instrument, protected women as the CEDAW or the Maputo Protocol or the regional, other uh, regional conventions, suffer uh, from a significant lack of political support and uh, state support. So, um, these very sophisticated international framework 
suffers uh, from effectiveness and uh, concrete application and strong application in uh, the different domestic systems. So I think one of the main challenges here, uh, but it's not uh, specific to uh, women's rights, but one of the main challenges here is uh, to improve uh, the application of the existing uh, legal instruments uh, in the domestic system. Maybe more fundamentally, uh, the revolution of ensuring that human rights are really human uh, women's rights or women's rights uh, are also human rights uh, requires a, a complete revolution in uh, the approach of some general uh, bodies uh, uh, and general protection uh, bodies. And as I said, and I will not develop this, but as I said, for instance, uh, the European Court of Human Rights should really open up uh, its mind to this gender-based approach of not only of gender on, on domestic violence, but um, uh, open up its mind and its way of reasoning regarding other kind of violence of uh, the European Convention of Human Rights. And for instance, uh, the NGOs are working more and more on the, on the uh, gender sensitive approach of torture, with this, which is totally silenced and, uh, by the, in the practice of the, um, uh, on the, uh, in the European Court of Human Rights. So, uh, uh, I think this gender-sensitive approach or this gender-sensitive interpretation is one of the main challenges um, facing by general human rights body and, and at least uh, some, uh, some of them uh, in order to ensure that um, international human rights law is really and is truly universal. Um, maybe uh, a sociological challenge, a sociological elements. Uh, uh, that should be added to these um, challenges. Uh, and sometimes uh, this uh, sociological challenge is um, uh, highlighted by um, uh, some actors, and especially the former uh, judge and, and vice president of the European Court of Human Rights, Francois Rilkens, um, has pointed out in a very fascinating study uh, that the quantitative um, weakness of women's access to the European Court of Human Rights and, and therefore to the law and, and to the protection provided by the European Court of Human Rights. And it was funny uh, in, his, in her study to see that Article 14 of the European Convention of Human Rights dealing with uh, prohibition of discrimination um, is mainly used by men uh, in, in order to, to, to fight against uh, the discrimination uh, they, they, they suffer. But they, they, this uh, provision is not really used by women. So it's, uh, it's a paradox, and uh, um, this paradox uh, is not only, uh, may not only be understood by uh, legal uh, uh, elements, but also by uh, sociological elements and, and different other grounds of, of discrimination and main, I mentioned uh, earlier. So this means that in order to achieve uh, universality to which uh, international human rights law uh, uh, aspires, it's necessary to proceed uh, with what the United Nations Working Group on Discrimination Against Women uh, calls uh, the comprehensive renegotiation of the social contract based on the substantial equality between men and women and um, respect for their equal dignity and freedom.
Thanks for your attention.